hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Celine Yeager and I first crossed paths when she asked me to be a guest on her podcast, Hit Play, Not Pause. Now, in general, I'm really leery of people who are self-proclaimed menopause experts and who have no medical background. Too many of them dose out advice based on their own experience or just trying to sell bogus products. But I dug a little deeper and found that while Celine Yeager is not a clinician, she is a well-respected health and fitness writer that takes her responsibility to give women good information very seriously. So seriously that she has built an enormous following of women who count on her to provide evidence-based medical information that has been vetted by true experts. And she does her research, which is why I was not surprised to bump into her, literally bump into her, (laughs) at this year's North American Menopause Society's annual medical conference, which took place in October in Atlanta. And I can promise you that Celine was only one of a handful of non-clinicians attending every lecture, taking notes, and learning about the latest research in the menopause world. So we met over coffee and decided there were a few lectures that really made an impact on both of us. And that real life practical ways to decrease the risk of cancer was at the top of the list. So we wanted to share this information with our listeners. So here we are and welcome Celine. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting to be here. And um, yeah, it was it was great to literally bump into you down at the NAMS conference. And unusual for you to be a guest instead of a host. Uh, not these days. And uh, I, I am being a guest more and more, like more because I have, you know, the sort of athletic training background. I mean, I, I talk in that sphere. But, you know, little known fact is that I started thinking that I would go to med school and it was more school than I wanted back in the day. <laughs> and um I ended up being a medical writer instead. So what you see is just like my passion of following that kind of science for about 27, 30 years now, (laughs) at least. So before we get into all this great information, could you just spend a few minutes talking about your feisty menopause platform, your podcast, just what you do, why you get these ridiculous number of women who hang on your every word? Yeah, I mean, I started um, Hit Play Not Pause in 2020, and that's the podcast. And Feisty Menopause is sort of the the written aspect. You know, we have an Instagram and a Facebook, and I write a blog. And I started it because uh, I hit menopause. <laughs> you know, so I was I was a competitive athlete. You know, at the elite level for many years, and then when I turned about 48. 49, like things changed very quickly overnight. And I, you know, before that, I should say they changed quickly overnight, except that I didn't know that anxiety was a symptom of perimenopause. I didn't know a lot of the things that I was experiencing, you know, years prior even could be related to this tumultuous hormonal upheaval that happens during this time. And I thought, 
why don't more people know this? And the more I dug, the more frustrated I became. And at the time, I was also working on um, co-authoring a book with Dr. Stacy Sims, who works in the women's specific physiology for training and nutrition. Uh, we had done Roar together, and we were starting to do a book for women in perimenopause and beyond called Next Level. And I thought, there has got to be more people just like me, you know, who are just confused and don't know what's happening to their own physiology and how can we help them. And I started this and I found out there are a lot of women just like me. (laughs) Yeah. But there were a lot of people talking this sort of a general space, which is fine. But if, you know, once you got to places where women, I mean, a lot of the women in my audience are doing Ironman or CrossFit games. I mean, they're really trying to still compete at this level and there were just really not many people talking to them. Yeah. And so you filled that space. Yeah. All right. So the NAMS conference, I, you know, I forgot mm-hmm. to ask you this before. Was that the first time that you had attended a medical conference or you have you gone to other medical conferences? <laughs> I used to, when I was a medical writer, I um, before I got into consumer press, I used to back now I'm dating myself, but before the internet um, or the internet got popular, I would attend medical conferences and write up like the 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 magazine kind of write-ups you would get from them. So I would go to like orthopedic conferences and infectious diseases in children, you name it. And I would go to these conferences, sit through them, and then summarize the sessions, like the kind of things that we sat through. And then go to Kinko's, dating myself further, yeah. <laughs> and put together a thing. And, you know, and then, and then people would get like a conference daily, almost. So, you know, you have a real perspective then. So I'm wondering with oh, that yeah. <laughs> perspective... What did you think of, of NAMS, of this menopause conference? Because I love it. I think it's a terrific conference. But for someone like you, who has been in this world for a long time and really understands these medical conferences and also is immersed in the menopause world, mm-hmm. what do you think personally as far as the, the quality of the lectures, the education, the research, the things that were being presented there? I think by and large, it's outstanding. You know, I mean, I would say like on a on a bird's eye view, global view, it's outstanding. Uh, one of the things I would really love to see and, you know, something I've been talking to with some of the doctors who've been on the show as well is that, that, you know, everyone tends to be in their silo a little bit, you know, so this, it's very, very medical, of course, but in a conference like that, you need like, a double blind placebo controlled randomized trial for everything, right? right? But there's so much, there's so much that we know that is useful, whether it be like resistance training and, and all kinds of stuff that just doesn't get studied as much. So right. it doesn't get presented as much, you know, right. and, I, and I, and I also had wished, you know, especially, and I think I mentioned this to you at the realm of weight, which we'll talk about. Um, you know, there was a little, there were a couple of sessions that didn't really agree with each other there, you know, that, it, that we were and the weight loss element right. of things. So, but I mean, overall, like it's so great and it's exciting to see all the research and the attention that is being paid to it. And I thought the conference was jam packed. I mean, we were in some sessions from like first thing in the morning until well, seven in the, the morning. Late afternoon. I know it's crazy. It was so, it was crazy. Well, you know, but interestingly, so I'm actually on the committee that sets the agenda for next year. Mm-hmm. And and we're having our first meeting um, very soon. So I think I'm going to talk about the concept of presenting data that maybe 
has not had that double blind controlled study, but just to say, this is something of note. This is something of interest. Maybe these are things that we need to pay more attention to because I mean, think about it. We've got a room full of researchers. Why not yeah. say, Hey, who wants to take this on and, and, and see if there really is something to it. That'd be right, outstanding. So, so one of the lectures that I think we both really enjoyed a lot was a lecture that was given by Dr. Don Musselman, Musselman. And, a lecture given by Dr. Dawn Musselam, and she's an assistant professor at Mayo. And, and she was talking about how the rates of breast cancer and, and other kinds of cancers, too, can be dramatically decreased just by changing lifestyle. And according to her, and also according to the American Institute of Cancer Research, 33% of breast cancer is preventable. 33% preventable by action steps that people can take. But I mean, what's what's really also equally shocking to me is that only three percent of U.S. healthcare dollars are spent on prevention as opposed to treatment. So if we could just ramp up getting this information out there so that we can prevent the cancers instead of just treating them, not to mention we don't have to just sit there and hope it doesn't happen to us or to our family. You know, there are things we can proactively do. So based on these lectures we heard and the research from the American Institute for Cancer Research, um, you and I came up with 10 specific things that women can do to decrease the risk, not only of breast cancer, but a lot of other cancers as well. So, yep. so let's get to it. Starting with number one, um, being physically active. And, and according to the data, if you are physically active, it will lower the risk of seven types of cancer, breast, colon, kidney, uterine, gallbladder, stomach, and esophagus. I mean, oh my God, right there. Just And and, and I want to be clear, and I want you to talk about is there's a difference between being physically active and doing exercise, because I think women hear exercise and they automatically go into, oh, I'm going to skip this. You know, I don't want to know about this. So talk about being physically active. And again, not from the point of view of losing weight, but even women who are a normal, healthy weight, how it, why is it that this physical activity is so important? And then give us some some real life ways that we can incorporate it into into our everyday life. Yeah, I mean, I had Dr. Amy Commander on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she is a breast cancer oncologist, you know, an oncology researcher, and she talked about this. She's like, the number one thing you can do is is be active and exercise, and that's even if you've had breast cancer, it also helps prevent the recurrence by, by quite a lot. I can't remember the number off the top of my head. Um, you know, I mean, it comes down to Lauren, we, that we are made to move. Like we are actually built to move when we, when we move our bodies, like all the systems are running their best, your immune systems and your immune cells circulate. It's just your healthiest state of being. And I try to help people think of it. You know, you don't have to like make this hour long time to go to the gym or if you like to do that, great. But a lot of people don't, you know, and that's a hundred percent. It's clear. not practical. They just can't get yeah, there. Totally. Um, but it's really just trying to decrease your inactivity time because, you know, there's a whole arm of research now called sedentary physiology, like inactivity physiology. And just like, just like your computer sort of dims down and goes into sleep mode. If you don't use it, your body kind of does the same thing and it's not good for you. Um, and they're sounding like a lot of the things like the insulin resistance and the, the lipid profiles and all that unhealthy metabolic knockoffs of just sitting all the time. So, you know, trying to 
work it into your life so you have activity throughout your life that works for you. Whether that be, you know, getting up and doing just something for 10 minutes in the morning is a great way to go. You know, whether it is taking a walk, whether it's doing a little yoga, whatever works for you just to sort of move your body a little bit, collect your thoughts, make it part of your morning routine. And I honestly, because as active as I am, there are days that I am terribly sedentary because I'm a writer, right? I sit a lot. I have the same problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I have started using a focus keeper app on my phone, which naturally sets a timer and it goes off. Like I can set what it is. It's um, programmed to go off every 25 minutes. I like to do every like 35 to 40 because I, that way I'm uninterrupted, but then it like goes off and then it gives me two minutes to move. And then it just keeps cycling. And it's just a really great way to be like, all right, I'm going to get up. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to do some things. And there was just a study that I wrote about that just following that kind of protocol, like really helps with that blood sugar management and all of that. It's just a really good way to you to just move. Right. And again, we're not talking weight loss here. We're just, no, no, we're just talking, moving your body. Literally about the (laughs) the metabolic benefits of, of being active. And so, so my, my tips that I tell people to get a little more active is number one. And I know this sounds obvious, but get rid of the heels, ditch the heels. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you how often I will end up if I am wearing heels or uncomfortable shoes, I'm going to call the Uber. I'm going to jump in the taxi instead of yeah. walking the, you know, half mile or mile because my feet are killing me. So yep. that in and of itself is a small thing, but it's something that makes a difference. And the other thing that I do is not right now because my apartment's under renovation, but in general, um, I have a treadmill desk. Um, mm. standing desk. And I find that even though it goes excruciatingly slow, because like you, I'm, I'm writing, but I can have it go very, very slowly. And if I spend three or four hours writing, which is not unusual, what that means is I might get three miles in. And no, it's great. So it really adds up. But the other thing I want to ask you along the lines of being more active, as you mentioned um, earlier, strength training, which is different than being active. And strength training also also has been associated with, with decreasing cancer risk. So, yes. um, and that goes under the heading of activity. So talk a little bit about what makes something strength training as opposed to just being active and how someone who's never done it in their life can maybe find a place for it. I am a giant, giant proponent of strength training. And I, and I always have been, but man, the more I read about the menopausal space and how we lose muscle, the sarcopenia that comes with aging, mm-hmm. it is, uh, man, it, it, it is everything. I mean, you not just, we're not just talking weight again, but we're talking your independence, your ability to open jars, your ability to like carry suitcases and just be independent really hinges on your muscle. And it's so important and it's harder to make muscle and it's harder to keep it, especially in this time of life and beyond. So, you know, strength training is exactly that. It is when you are purposely resisting something, whether it be a weight, whether it be your own body weight, like in doing push-ups or some sort of squats until your muscles are tired, you know, and like that can usually take about 10 reps if you're doing squats or push-ups, but it it's challenging your muscles. Your muscles only build if they are challenged and they need to be challenged with resistance. And that can be again in the form of a weight or in the form of your own body weight. And even just doing that twice a week, really makes a difference. You know, but I think also when people think in terms of strength training, the the visual that they have is weight, 
barbells, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And I think what you just said was so important about strength training can be as simple as doing push-ups against the wall, you know, yes. using resistance. It doesn't have to be fancy. You don't need special equipment. You know, there's yeah. all kinds of things that you can do that are going to to work on those muscles and throughout your body. And not to mention, we're not talking about this today, but the impact that that's going to have on bone health, um, osteoporosis and all that's incredibly important, which is another topic for another day. But also, as I know, you know, but a lot of people are not aware, while exercise has not specifically been consistently shown to decrease hot flashes, strength training has been. Yeah. And so, you know, it's win, 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 win. So strength training is big. Okay, let's move on to number two. The number two action step is red meat. I mean, the, the data is kind of scary. Um, I read in, in one credible source that women who consume steak on a regular basis have over a 200% increased risk of, of breast cancer. And so I don't think that I would necessarily suggest that women completely eliminate red meat from their diet. But do you have any like <laughs> suggestions on how a diehard meat eater can maybe eat less red meat? Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I would, I'd love to see that source too, because I had not seen that on steak. I, I actually did a little digging. From in. That, you know where I got it from? It was from the, the lecture. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it was, I took it from one of her slides that she did, um, cite, uh, specific studies. So I'll send that slide to you, but it was from the Mayo Clinic lecture about that stat and I was blown away by it. Yeah, because I mean, what I, I'll tell you what I learned today and hadn't really thought about. So I looked it up on examine.com, which is a great resource that sieves through the, you know, the research and sort of grades it according to the quality of the studies. Love the resource. And, you know, they also said that it's important to remember that when you say red meat, it's a super broad category that despite what the pork industry wants to tell you includes pork. Yeah. <laughs> like pork is not a white meat. Pork is actually a red meat. Um, mm-hmm. and often, you know, when people eat red meat, it's also processed, you know, which is, well, we're going to get to that. Yeah. yeah right. We okay. are going to get to that. Yeah, um, you know, so if you are eating, you know, bacon and, and uh, a hamburger and ham for dinner, you're eating a lot of red meat. You know, even if you don't think you are, you, you yeah. are. So I like to always try to encourage people to think of things to add into their diet instead of take away, because I just think it's a better way to approach your health in general. I always have. So think of a way like to add something new, like maybe one night you have tofu for, you know, for dinner. find a good stir fry recipe that includes tofu and then find one that includes fish and then find one that includes poultry, you know, and then all of a sudden you're three days in and you haven't had any red meat, right? Like I think that just working those other things in you automatically have um, moderation, which is what it's all about. That's exactly it. I mean, I think it, and and, you know, just to be clear, all these suggestions that you and I are making, I don't think we're intending that everybody does every single thing. It's the idea of pick things that you think you can do or at least do a little bit of, but you're exactly right. I mean, the other day I was making chili because we were going to have, you know, a bunch of people over for chili. So making this huge vat of chili and I have this recipe that it's for a turkey chili, but it's got the, it's the secret ingredient is pumpkin. It's turkey pumpkin chili. And I'm telling you, I have given this to people who are diehard meat eaters and they're like, Oh my God, this is so amazing. You know, where'd you get this recipe? And it's, there's not a, you know, a speck of, of beef in it. Yeah. And it's still really delicious. So I think that's it is, is to, to find ways to bring in 
things. So you don't think of it, like you said, as eliminating It's what can we do that's new and interesting and yeah. even, even more delicious, if, if not healthier, of course, which brings us to number three. Um, you know, the old elephant in the room, people are, are tired of hearing this, but they need to hear about it because we know that maintaining a healthy weight is incredibly, incredibly important when, when it comes to decreasing cancer risk. And it's always interesting to me because a lot of times when I'm talking to people about hormone therapy, and we'll get to that a little bit later, and they'll say, well, I wouldn't take estrogen. It's going to give me cancer. And they're literally sitting there, you know, a hundred pounds overweight. And, and when in fact it is that weight, um, that is dramatically increasing the risk. 11% of cancers in women are specifically due to excess body weight. Breast and uterus are at the top of that list. And uterine cancer is the number one gynecologic cancer in this country. So, mm. you know, and, and I think, and, and, and this is what I get into as a physician, and then I'm sure you do too in the work that you do is this whole idea of walking the fine line between, you know, body shaming versus saying to someone, Hey, you need to, to lose weight. And, um, and it's not about body shaming. We're not saying that someone's not a, a wonderful person and a sexy person and a worthwhile person if they have excess weight. We're just simply saying that the excess weight is increasing your risk of, of a lot of medical illnesses. And, and one of the things we both talked about that I'm going to let you jump in on is when we heard that um, other lecture from the doctor who talked about, we have to stop saying that people are obese mm-hmm. and start talking about that they have obesity much like someone has high blood pressure. Do you want to talk about yeah. it? Talk about that. It was such a cool concept. She's going to be on the show. And that is something that I, I started hearing literally probably more than 10 years ago. You know, that was Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford who said that. Yeah. And I loved her presentation. Her presentation was um, amazing. Loved it. Loved it. Because she was talking about the research that Man, I've been just swimming in for 30 years. The New York Times actually did a really interesting piece that was similar today called Scientists Don't Agree on What Causes Obesity, But They Know What Doesn't, um, which is willpower. (laughs) You know, I mean, and that's kind of what she was saying, that it is a disease process. So if you have somebody, you know, who is sitting there and they've been battling that 40, 50, 100 pounds, it's really not a matter of trying to find that next fad diet because we, we've we seen how that plays out, right? It's, right. it's, it's a matter of honestly, perhaps going to a doctor and sitting down and looking at your options. And she mentioned quite a few pharmacological ones that she's had great yeah, success and, with. You know, I actually, I have a podcast on that with, with Dr. Kushner, um, really addressing the, the weight loss. It used to be that you only got a weight loss drug if you were like really obese and they had yeah. all these side effects. And now there are all these really wonderful new drugs that not only work very, very well, but they don't have all these nasty side effects. And it's, and, and, you know, one of the things that Dr. Kushner talked about on, on my episode, but but Dr. Uh, Cody did as well, is the idea of this isn't a matter of try harder or it's your fault. Right. It's it's a matter of, no, you have particular risk factors or genetic makeup. And did you catch the part? I'd actually forgotten about this, but I was going back and looking at the slides um, this morning. She had that slide about things that happen prenatally that cause yeah. you to store fat um, and energy storage later in life. I mean, I just yes. thought- Oh my God. I mean, looking at things like if your mother smoked or if your mother was stressed and a lot of other things that happened while you were still in utero. Totally. It's the impact <laughs> on energy storage later in life. And that's the, that's the key part is that there are so many factors that, that influence. It's not calories in, calories out, which I not could have all. like, 
I just wanted to jump up and hug her when she said that. I really did because, you know, she mentioned like all these factors that influence energy storage and energy intake. And it's not simple. And it has a lot to do with our environment internally, externally, you know, and she also, which I think is important for us to mention, I loved that she put up those BMI charts that show that, you know, a BMI is kind of flawed. Yeah. But, but that, that, that it's not like your risk is not uniform. A lot of it depends on, you know, your race, like the, the BMI cutoffs for different comorbidities is different for Hispanic and black women than it is for white women, you know, and that's something that gets overlooked and not everybody who has a higher body fat necessarily will go on to develop those associated complications, you know, so it's really just important to take away the shame and to be like, okay, I have this I have this, I have this condition, I have this condition. What is it doing to my health? Let's check that. And then what shall we do about it? You know, instead of this, this, this shaming and this blaming that we've been doing for 50 years, that clearly is getting us nowhere. It's getting us worse than nowhere. We're seeing such a backlash socially that it's this defensiveness of, Hey, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, being overweight. And my response to that is, yeah, there is something wrong with being overweight because it's putting you at risk for getting cancer and heart disease and diabetes and other things that can shorten your life. So let's talk about why this has happened, why it's difficult for you and what steps we can do to to change it. One of the other things that she mentioned also that I think doesn't get enough attention are medications that people are given to oh, treat right. all manner of things. And and no one ever bothers to mention that maybe your antidepressant or your sleeping pill or the drug you're taking for nerve pain or something like that is sabotaging your other efforts. And, and you know, and I talk a lot about it. And I had an earlier um, episode that I did on why people gain weight at menopause. And, and there's a lot of reasons she talked about that too. Yeah. But even just, you know, we know that if you don't get a decent night's sleep and hot flashes increase your cortisol. And I mean, you and I could probably talk for about 10 hours on <laughs> yeah. all the things that, that get in the way. But my, our point being that we can't ignore it. We can't just say it doesn't matter. It does matter. We know that, you know, when you think about this statistic of 11% of cancers in women are specifically due to being overweight, we got to do something about that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially it is, it's one of those things like, like you mentioned that, that, that people will, will be so, reluctant to go the hormone route and that, you know, that because those messages just won't go away that they got in the early 2000s. But those hormones, those same hormones could help them sleep better and avoid their hot flashes and maybe have all these effects that would actually lower their cancer risk. Well, exactly, exactly. So, all right, number four. Number four on the list is, it's you know, we said all calories. It's not about calories in and calories out. It's about what makes up those calories. And one of the points that has been made again and again in the lectures we heard is that it appears to be diets that are um, rich in whole grains, mm-hmm. vegetables, fruits, and that um, the analysis is, is that 5% of all cancer is attributed to a, a poor diet. Um, which again, I mean, these numbers add up. That's, that's huge. So we talk about getting five servings of fruit and vegetables is, is the general recommendation. Um, so my first question is, does ketchup count as a vegetable? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but seriously, how, how do you get that in? I mean, I, 
I think I do because I have actually like that stuff. But for someone who's not a big vegetable or a fruit person, how are ways that they can make that part of their daily routine without having to think about it too much? Yeah, I mean, and I it's it's tough for me because I like them too. But um, you know, I think one of the the important factors here when we're talking about the the fruits and the vegetables and and the whole grains, I think, come into that too. Is um, you know, they add fiber, and fiber is really when you talk about cancer, especially like the average woman only eats thirteen grams of fiber a day, and that's yeah. easily half of what she should be eating. You mm-hmm. know, so so to add some of these elements in your diet, again, I'm always about adding. You know, I think it like trying to find ways to just slip things in is the best way to do it. So in the morning, can you throw a handful of blueberries in something, anything? Can you throw them you know, in your yogurt? Can you throw them in your cereal? Can you throw them? Like I, it's just such an easy way to just like get that first serving in, yeah. you know, and then have spinach on hand to, again, throw in anything, whether it's in your omelet, whether it's on top of your sandwich, whether it's on top of whatever, that's another easy way. Um, I have a, I roast vegetables so I can just put them in stuff throughout the week, whether that's a rice dish or a pasta dish, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, purposely, I, I think people don't like to eat vegetable because they associate it with like terrible steamed broccoli with nothing on it. Right. You know, and that just sits there on the side of their plate and they're just like, oh, I guess I must eat that school lunches in the cafeteria (laughs) where they put the wilted, you know, broccoli stalk and you're just, oh God. You're like, nobody wants that. But can you add it in a stir fry? You can easily get two servings of vegetables in a stir fry, if if not three. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that, that, that we do at home that actually makes a big difference is at the beginning of the day, we have like a colander that sits by our sink and we just wash a whole bunch of blueberries and throw them in there. And so during the day, when you just feel like you got to put something in your mouth, yep. it's, like it's, it's, it's sitting right there. So you're like, yep. you walk by and you, and you take a handful of blueberries and, and kind of pick at them and, and it, it does add up. So um, definitely. Yeah. That so, kind of stuff. So number five, um, and, and this is huge, huge. Yeah, it is. It's is, huge. is I the think processed that's food thing. Yeah. Because when there's this new study that just came out that, um, <laughs> that I'm actually, I, I'm going to do a, a news piece on it in Chicago in the news because this was, this is terrifying. When we look at ultra processed food, and I actually looked up the definition of an ultra processed food so that we're all clear on what we're talking about. Um, an ultra processed food is defined as a food that's made using sequences of processes that extract substances from real food, um, alter them with chemicals or other additives such as extra sugar in order to formulate the final product. So if you make a pizza at home and you're using fresh ingredients and all that, that's not processed food. But if you buy a frozen pizza, you can't even pronounce half the ingredients that are listed on the box. That counts as a processed food. And this particular study that was actually done in Brazil um, mm-hmm. looked at premature deaths from processed foods. And what they found is that in their analysis of over half a million premature deaths in 2019, um, 10% of those deaths were because of diets um, heavy in ultra-processed food. But this is the statistic that really got to me. In Brazil, only 20%, only, only 20% of food that people eat is processed. In the United States, right now, over 50% of the food that is consumed is ultra process. So Celine, give us some solutions. How do we get rid of all this processed food in our diet? It is, it is a real problem. I mean, it is a real problem. I think, 
I understand the desire for convenience for sure. I think it's looking for it in other places, you know, whether that be pre-cut vegetables, pre like that kind of thing that you can make easily and just finding a way to, to there's no way around the fact that you will need to, to cook a little bit or at least be mindful in what you're picking up, you know, but it's, it is a real, real problem. Yeah. I mean, the ultra processed food is a real, real problem. And I think it's a crux of a lot of our woes in this country, mm-hmm. frankly. Huge. You know, one of the things that I think we don't think enough about is, is where it starts and it starts when you're kids. Yeah. And, and I learned that in a lot of school cafeterias, that they are serving food from places like McDonald's and Pizza Hut and all that kind of stuff because those sorts of you know places will give them free food or very low cost food. Yeah. And what they're really doing, of course, is assuring that the children of today become the adults of tomorrow that have a taste for this kind of stuff. And I mean, to me, that would be a great place to start is I'd love not, that. Only, not only at home, but the idea of in school that get kids to to appreciate the fact that they should be eating actual food. And the other thing also, and I know you're a cook and I'm a cook, um, I, I think for a lot of people, it's, it's overwhelming, the idea of cooking, because they didn't grow up doing it and they think it's really hard and it's really not. It's really not. It's really not. I don't follow recipes. I just, I have a, you know, to throw a, I have, a, I have a toaster oven that I may actually make most of my stuff and I roast my vegetables in there. I cook my fish in there. It, it can be very simple with a little olive oil and salt and pepper. And it's, it, it doesn't have to be that complicated. No, it's not complicated. And one of the things that also struck me is it's not even like you've got to even read a cookbook because now you just go on, you know, YouTube. Oh, that's <laughs> true too. They'll show you. <laughs> and it'll show you, you know, okay, you take this and you dump it into that. But the other thing also, I think we have to acknowledge that there are a lot of people that it is, it is less expensive to go and get a meal from a fast food place, not only to mention more convenient and easier, but it's less expensive than cooking at home. And I, and I think that's one of the fallacies too, because, um, I don't know if you've ever spent any time in Europe, but if you live in Europe, you don't stock your refrigerator filled with stuff and then end up throwing it all out. You yeah. kind of decide what you're going to eat that day and you go and you get, you know, a tomato, you know, <laughs> a, a potato. Yeah. And so you, it's not that expensive. It's the food waste that's expensive. It's not the eating fresh food. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of strategies and I think we really need to kind of focus on that because the, um, the processed food thing is, is, is huge, huge. And the health costs of it. Well, that's, um, yeah, know? right. And, and again, and you know, people don't think about today, that and I get but it. It's, but... not just, it's not just cancer, of course. It's diabetes. Yeah. It's heart disease. Um, it's the whole struggle with being overweight. It's, it's all the, the process stuff. Um, which brings and mood. And, mood. and the, the, you know, wow. it, like there's a lot of studies on that too. Ultra processed mm-hmm. food and, and mood is there's food and mood are inextricably connected. Yeah. And you know, the other thing also, just to circle back for a second, when we were talking about decreasing red meat, and a lot of people are decreasing red meat by eating these, um, you know, the fake burgers, the, uh, you know what I'm like talking beyond, about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's processed. It's and terrible. When you look at that of, stuff. All the chemicals in there are terrifying. And and when people say, is that beneficial? And, and quite frankly, the only thing it's beneficial for is the environment. Um 
but it is certainly not beneficial from a health point of view. That's questionable too. Like if you if we were trying to going to try to feed everyone with the because they're GMO uh, soy like monocrop old agriculture, I could go in there. I, I don't think that you know a lot more about that than I do. I don't know anything about it. I just my husband works at Rodell Institute. So well. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we, we should do We could do a whole nother podcast on that one. But yeah, but yeah I mean, that's um, so that's people thinking that they're doing the right thing because yeah. of yeah. bad marketing or good marketing, depending on how you, you look at it. And yeah. and so they have this idea of, oh, I'm eating healthy. I'm eating a Beyond Burger instead of eating meat when, in fact, you're really not, you know, so we need a lot more education in that area. All right. Number six, we won't spend too much time on this one. Um, sugar sweetened drinks. I looked that up because I saw that you wanted to talk about that. And actually there's a study that's recent that postmenopausal women who consumed at least one serving of sugar sweetened beverage beverages per day had a 78% greater risk for developing liver cancer. Liver cancer and uterine cancer also is huge. Dear Lord. Um, you know, know it, people don't know yeah. this. They, they think about it as far as the calories. There's that. We're not talking about that today. We are talking about yeah. cancer risk from sugar sweetened drinks. There's so right. many good alternatives now. So many good alternatives, right? To sodas and sugar sweetened teas. I think. Yeah, it, it's just a matter of finding something that, you know, whether it's making your own infused water. I don't like plain water necessarily either. But no, little, I throw little a little sweetness. cranberry juice in there. You yeah. know, and I think that and again, starts with the kids. These kids start with juice and people yeah. you know, get into the habit of juice. But I, I think the easiest way, if you are someone who's big on particularly juices and all of that, just start by cutting it, you know, yeah. one third water, two thirds juice until you can like decrease it. The the carbonated stuff is is a problem. I saw um, a patient this morning in the office who's really struggling with her weight. And we were kind of like running through what she's doing. And she said, yeah, I do have this bad Coke habit. You know, I am drinking, you know, a liter of Coke a day. And when I said, okay, calories aside, are you aware that that's increasing your cancer risk? And she looked at me and just said, oh my God, no, I had no idea. Not to mention it's and your bones bone, and your bones, you're zapping your bone from us. And right. So, you know, the, the sugar sweetened drinks, again, they're being marketed. They're being marketed to kids. And as far as I'm concerned, these are carcinogens. They are carcinogens. And yet we have kids and adults drinking this stuff all day. So this is one really meaningful action step. All right. Number seven is the one I personally have a hard time with. Um, <laughs> and I wish I could take it off the list, but in fairness, I'm going to leave it on the list. And that's um, alcohol. And um, evidently, alcohol is considered to be a carcinogen, which is responsible for 12% of breast cancers specifically, and a bunch of other cancers too. So I think, again, to be totally honest about the impact alcohol has, we we need to keep that on our list. Yeah, no, it, it we do. And I, it's something I will say too, that I, I think about that because I like wine. I like my, you know, I like a good like cocktail. My wine, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, what I, what I have, what I have started doing is trying to find again, me and my ad mentality is I have tried to find some of the um, non-alcoholic sort of spirit things. Cause I, I do like a good com like complex, good cocktail. Mm -hmm. I have not found a good 
a good NA wine. If anyone has one, I'm all ears. I have not found one. They have some decent beers for people who are into beer, but like if you can find that thing just to sort of add it in there. And then when you add something like that in, you automatically decrease your consumption of the other thing. I mean, that has been successful for my myself, but yeah, yeah. I will never for be me. a <laughs> <laughs> Just it's not... <laughs> I do all the other things, but you know, it's just like, well, well, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say that I've cut alcohol out of my life because I have not. Um, But, but what has been successful for me is that I have found that when you get to either an event or someone's home or you sit down in a restaurant, you know, the very, very first thing that happens, of course, is you are, you order your drink, you get your glass of wine. And that first glass generally goes down really, really fast because you're thirsty. So what I do now is I, automatically immediately get a sparkling water and I ask them if I'm at an event or if I'm at home, I put it in a wine glass. Hmm. I don't know why this does something in my lizard head. brain. It's good for it's your lizard brain. brain. Thing, right? <laughs> so, so I drink that for my first glass, knowing I'm going to get wine next. I'm not saying I'm yep. not going to wine tonight. I just start with the sparkling water. I drink that down and that's going to do a couple of things for me. One is that's the one that's going to go down fastest so that when I do get my second glass, which is my first glass of wine, I'm going to sip it a lot more slowly. And then what I find is that it really does cut down my alcohol consumption, sometimes by as much as a third. So- yeah. Um, you know, no, I, that's, that's a good tip. That's a really good tip. Yeah, I have found that too. When I get the water beforehand, I have not put it in a wine glass. That's a great idea. It's a the great idea. Also, then people don't keep looking and saying, what, you're not drinking tonight. Like not that it should matter or not that it's any right. business, but still, it's just kind of you, you're there standing with everyone. You've got your wine glass, you're, you're festive. No, Here we are. I like that. This is going to be airing, I think in, in December, right around the holiday season. So yeah. good time to get started with that. Um, great tip. Number eight um, is when, when we look in terms, we've, we've been talking about things that you can do yourself, you know, actionable steps. And when we think about genetics, people always think, well, I can't do anything about my genetics. And that's true. You can't, but you can know your genetics because if you know your genetics, then you can take steps which will decrease your risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of people, of course, are familiar with the BRCA mutation, which increases your risk um, primarily of, of breast and ovarian cancer. But that's not the only mutation. There are a lot of other mutations out there that are associated with other cancers. And so I think um, it's really important to, as best as you can, get a family history, which I know is easier said than done. Um, but, but find out, you know, a lot of times people will say, oh, so-and-so um, died of, of bone cancer and it wasn't actually bone cancer. It was another kind of cancer that spread to the bone, you know? Oh. So, so sometimes you kind of have to do a little bit of a deeper dive to find out and then um, get some genetic testing, which is a blood test. And I am in the camp, as many others are, that we think there should be universal genetic testing. You shouldn't have to prove to your insurance company that you're at high risk in order to get this testing. But the reality is, is that you do. Um, but another thing that you can sometimes do to get around it, if, if maybe, you know, you don't know your family history is there is a category called limited family history that if someone is adopted or if someone has a small family, um, but you're concerned about a risk of a genetic mutation. And so your best bet in, in getting this kind of information is 
you can have a consultation with the genetic counselor. Um, most major medical centers have them, but it is covered by insurance to really find out if in fact you are at risk based on your family history. I mean, a lot of people aren't aware that if colon cancer runs in the family, that there's something called the Lynch syndrome mutation that is also associated with uterine cancer. So, and there's a lot of other ones out there like that. So just because it's not breast and ovarian doesn't mean that you shouldn't find out as much as you can about your family and then meet with a genetic counselor to find out if in fact you're a good candidate for um, a testing for genetic mutation. And a lot of people think, well, do I really want to know this information? And the answer is yes, you do. Um, first of all, there's a law, uh, a national law that says that you cannot be discriminated against in terms of insurance, employment, or anything because you have a known genetic mutation. And if you are in that category that you have a genetic mutation, there are a lot of things that you can do to either increase early detection or decrease your risk of getting cancer. Um, and and I think that that can't be overemphasized. So I've, I've been kind of blabbering on about that. I don't know if you want to add anything in. No, I think that's excellent advice. I mean, I think that I understand that I don't think I want to know, but the, you know, it's not destiny, you know, it's not manifest destiny because you have this, like knowing is empowering you to take like these steps to prevent that gene from becoming, you know, you you can't slay the dragon if you don't see the dragon coming. hundred (laughs) percent. So, so we need to slay that dragon. Right. So find out how many dragons are behind the door, you know, and then slay them. them. Yes. Um, number nine, the, the don't use supplements recommendation. Had you heard that before? I, you know, man, I have been following this for so long and it goes back and forth and back and forth, but I have seen, like, I think the problem is people over supplement, you know, I mean, it, people, it's like, oh, if we need this, then we must need 10 times this. And it, it can be really problematic. Yeah. Well, you know, I had actually not been familiar with that recommendation. I think that that was one of the recommendations that was on the list for um, the uh, American Institute for Cancer Research. So yeah. do, not, do not take supplements. And so I was trying to find out why they came out with that recommendation. And because, you know, we, you and I, we, we read and we talk about the fact that there are some supplements that, um, that, have been, you know, like antioxidants or phytochemicals and plants that they seem to keep our cells healthier and might reduce disease, yet they're saying don't use them. Well, I mean, I, I am old enough to remember when they halted the big carrot study. So I, and I was writing about it at the time. So they had this study because they had just sort of discovered beta carotene and, you know, its effect is an antioxidant and beta carotene C and E were all the rage at the time. And people were mega dosing them and putting them in everything. And they had this study on, I think it was Swedish or Finnish smokers and they were giving them beta carotene, seeing if it would prevent cancer. And they had to halt the study because everybody was getting more cancer. And the New York Times did a piece even some 15 years later that those people were still at risk for cancer because it was creating like super free radicals in them. Like Because the problem is that all of these carotenoids in a carrot or in whatever worked symbiotically, but you can't just pull one thing out and give high doses because it can not react with other things in the same way. And all of a sudden it becomes, it's promoting something you're trying to stop. So I, I, my read on that was, was sort of based on that, that we've seen this happen when, when people start like taking too much of something, it actually has the opposite effect of what they're going for. Um, I, that being said, 
you know, you you are going to see the whole multivitamin things pendulum swing back and forth a thousand times. I have seen it be like, don't take it. People are more likely to have premature death when they do. Do take it. They're not. And I think that um, multivitamins are so complicated, we're never going to get a clear answer on it. Yeah. No, and you know, and when I was looking at this, just just as, as you had talked about, about the fact that it actually can make it worse, but not only could it potentially, potentially make it worse, but and people who are already have cancer, there's actually some evidence that if you are taking supplements, that your treatment for cancer may not be as effective. Again, based that. on this whole free radical thing and everything. So, and, and then the other piece of it, of course, is that this complacency of I don't need to worry about whether I'm doing all this other right. stuff, eating healthy and, you know, avoiding all the things we talked about because I'm taking supplements. And, and I think that's part of what that recommendation is about is, you know, this, this is not the important part here. You know, the important yeah. part is, is to eliminate the bad stuff from your diet, put in the good stuff, um, and not count on, all these supplements, which may in fact be harming you, just kind of yeah. Eat, eat do go back to the other things that we said and eat like those whole foods. <laughs> it's much better for you, and you'll get those. You'll get all those vitamins and minerals. Yeah, and then um, finally number ten, which of course I feel like is number one in almost every episode I do, um, and this is that if you want to reduce your risk of breast cancer, one of the things you can do is to take estrogen. Um, and again, you know, everyone is like. Just that the memo's not getting out, even though we know that in that old study, the WHI and the 50 to 60 year old group, the women that took estrogen alone, not only had a 37% decrease in heart disease and an 11% decrease in stroke and 12% decrease in new onset diabetes, um, but they had an 18% decrease in, in breast cancer. And, and I did do a whole podcast on this episode 31, the truth about estrogen and breast cancer. But so, you know, you and I are beating this drum all the time. Um, so, but the question I have for you, because you're out there talking to women um, and talking to maybe the different communities that I'm talking to, tell me what, what you're hearing out there. Are women getting that message or are they still just as afraid of, of estrogen? Because I know the women I see in our clinic are just as afraid of estrogen. They are just as afraid of estrogen. And I do have a question for you is what do you... Um, say to them when the progesterone or progestin. Yeah. So, so it's in. really interesting because when we look again at the WHI data, all of the women in that, uh, in that study that have a uterus, and of course you need to take some kind of progestogen to protect the lining of the uterus. And all of them were taking, um, progesterone acetate, which is the, the trade name yep. is Provera. And, and what we now know is that it's not just any progestin. It's, it's that one. And in fact, um, I don't prescribe it at all, ever anymore. I look at it as being a carcinogen and not if someone's taking it short term, but, you know, long term, big picture. And yep. there was there have been now a couple studies, include one very, very recently that looked specifically at, at micronized progesterone. Um, and they found that there was no increased risk in breast cancer from women mm-hmm. taking micronized progesterone. So really, the the answer is, is that we know that estrogen alone decreases breast cancer. As best as we can tell, micronized progesterone does not increase the risk of breast cancer. And then, of course, we look at alternatives to progesterone, things like we use an IUD in some mm-hmm. women. We're talking about women who have a uterus. Women who don't yeah. have a uterus don't need to do this. Um, 
But also there's a product that I'm, I know you're familiar with, um, but it's been off the market for a few years. So women are not as familiar with it. And this is the trade name is, is Duave. Um, this is an oral pill that instead of progesterone has a selective estrogen receptor modulator known as basodoxifen, which not only doesn't increase the risk of, of breast cancer, but most likely decreases it. And um, it is coming back. It was taken off the market, not for medical reasons. It was taken off the market because of packaging reasons that they felt that it was exposed to the air too much in the packaging and it might have degraded the product. But um, it has taken a long time. I think Pfizer, who makes the product, got sidelined with making vaccines. Um, I was just at the World Congress on Menopause in Portugal, and there was a presentation there um, and it looks like we are going to be seeing that back very, very soon. So this is this is really, really good news um, for women who want to take estrogen, but who are concerned about taking the progesterone because of um, their breast cancer potential risk. Why do you think that that message is not clearer at a, at something like the NAMS meeting? Because they don't they don't say that. You don't hear them saying yeah, that. They do. I mean, I think, first of all, if we talk about why is this message not clear overall in the world, and my answer to that is because most physicians have not gotten the memo. You know, they're the ones that are out there that are scaring women to death, that I will put someone on estrogen, yes. and then they go to their internist or family doctor who says, oh, my God, you know, go off of that immediately. And, you know, so so we have the overwhelming majority of physicians who do not keep up with the menopause literature who are not aware of this. So so that's problem number one mm-hmm. is that um is is that the, the doctors haven't gotten the memo. As far as at NAMS, I mean it's interesting because part of it is is NAMS is filled with, with menopause experts, and I think they kind of assume that everybody knows that. Um so maybe it's it's not emphasized as much. I think it, it needs to be emphasized more. I mean, we, you know, we talked earlier about the conference and is it a good conference and everything. And I think one of the things about NAMS that from my point of view makes it a good conference, but is potentially problematic is you have the world's experts there in menopause and you have all of the heavy duty researchers and you have all the people who know the data. They know the literature like the back of their hand. And then when you have people who are relatively new in the menopause world, they go to this conference and they're kind of overwhelmed and blown away because they don't know a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so to your point, if you were to give a test to any of the people who attend NAMS, you know, the, the practitioners that um, the clinicians and nurse practitioners and everything that attend and ask the majority of them, if you take estrogen will decrease the risk of breast cancer, most of them would say, yes, of course, everybody knows that. But the point is everybody doesn't. And right. so maybe they, they do need to do a better job. And, you know, as, as you know, I've been doing some research in cannabis and um, and I have a survey that, that is ongoing that I'm publishing the results. And one of the questions I ask is, you know, why are you taking cannabis to relieve your menopause symptoms instead of estrogen? And basically, you know, all these women are saying, well, you know, duh, because I don't want to get cancer and estrogen is going to cause cancer, not just breast cancer, but other kinds of cancers as well. So the memo is not getting out there. So even though I feel like I say it in every single episode, I think I think we have to keep saying it and we have to keep talking about this because not only are women being scared away unnecessarily from taking estrogen, but they are suffering as a result of it, not just in terms of their symptoms, yeah. but long-term in terms of their bone health, um, heart health, and 
you know, all the other things that we talk about. So maybe I should have made that number one on the list. I thought about it, except I thought then people will stop listening. So no, that's good. <laughs> I'll just put it at the end. I don't know. All right. So all right. So, so we've done the 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 10 things we wanted to get to. So just as a recap, real quick, these are the 10. One is increase your physical activity. Two is decrease or eliminate red meat. Three is that healthy weight. You got to get there and you got to maintain it. Four is uh, pick it up as far as whole grains, vegetables, fruits. Um, five is get processed food out of your life. Six is sugar-sweetened drinks. Get them out of there. Forget it. Um, seven is avoid alcohol. Eight is <laughs> <laughs> check and make sure your family history, if you've had a genetic mutation. Nine is skip the supplements. And 10 is um, and think about taking estrogen not only to uh, for the other benefits of estrogen, but also to reduce your risk of breast cancer. So, you know, do you want to add an 11 or 12 or 13? I don't want to limit you. No, no, no. I think we could talk all day, but I think that is a very good, I mean, if people just did a fraction of those, you know, just picked like three or four, they're already, they're already lowering the risks, right? Like, so it's like, right. we no said one's going to do all of it and no one's going to yeah. do all of it perfectly. Out of this yeah. list of 10, pick five yep. that you really think you can do. Yeah. And that's going to make a difference. Um, okay. I also want to mention, and I'm going to put all your stuff in the program notes because I want to know how they find your podcast. Hit yeah. play, not pause. Don't forget to go to episode 16, Sex Solutions with, with me. Loved it. <laughs> we had fun recording that. That, that was, was really fun. fun. So I will put the link in the program notes. Um, and uh, how to get to, to your to your blog to your feisty menopause platform. Um, before we close, is there anything else you want everyone to know about you, what you do, how to find you, and how they can be more involved in in your world? No, you know, feisty menopause is the one-stop shop. Like we are, it's really been a fun, it's grown exponentially. And it, I, I love the community. And, if, you know, you can just go there. We're having some summits, you know, and some in real life events, which is very exciting again to be able to see people. So oh, please invite me. I want to be to real life events. Yeah, no, everyone loves in real life events. So yeah, definitely just that. That's the thing that you should remember feistymenopause.com and you'll find the rest in the show notes. And I'm, it's been a real pleasure. I'm really glad that we've been able to connect again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Yeah.